Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about the regenerative garden, nurturing nature through sustainable gardening practices with Eva Monheim, who is a horticultural and environmental consultant and educator. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing, Gabriella? I'm good. I'm good other than struggling with regenerative, um, which uh, if I might make mistakes throughout the podcast, so please bear with me. Um, but other than that, I'm pretty good. How are you today? Great, really good. And it is a hard word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that we get to know you a bit better, how did you get into this area? And um, do you mind introducing yourself a bit? Um, I've been in the horticulture field since I've been a really young girl. Um, I started as a, I bet maybe about five years old. Uh, family were, my father and mother's side of the family were farmers over in Europe. And then when they came here, they had gardens, they had avid gardens, and my aunt and uncle owned a farm. So we spent a lot of time at the farm and learning how to plant and pick. And um, and then as I grew up and continued to garden at home, at my parents' home, I, um, I really found a passion in that, collecting seeds and finding new types of seeds and planting the garden, canning, cooking, uh, all of that, uh, besides all my other activities like art and design, that kind of thing. But I, when I went on to college, I chose to go for horticulture. And that was really exciting because I was going to one of the premier schools in our state of Pennsylvania, um, the Penn State uh, University. And it was, it was a really wonderful time because there was a lot of things happening in the horticulture field that were new. And, and I guess I want to say different, yeah, one including uh, hydroponics and um, looking at how nuclear reactors affect seed and um, all kinds of things. And to me, that was really fascinating. And also the opportunity to see how things were done at the university level in big greenhouses, um, going out into the field and seeing what they look like when, when we were out in the field. Um, so it, it was really wonderful. It's a good education. Mm -hmm. It sounds very interesting. Um, you know, seeing what nuclear, what I guess nuclear power or nuclear fission does to to plants and all that kind of stuff. Uh, wow, very complex. Um, and um, it seems like you have a very varied interest, though, um, with art, design, and also horticulture. I, I do. And I have my other degree while I was going to university uh, for four years. I got my horticulture degree and then I decided I was going to get my art degree at the same time. So I worked the two together. And uh, I just never thought 
of separating them. I always felt like they belong together because horticulture means the art of, of cultivation. So I, I feel like that's really ingrained in me. Wow, I love that. Um, and we're going to get to know you a little bit better with a section we call Have You Met Eva? Um, so the first thing we'd like to know is what is your favorite book? Oh, books. Well, my favorite scientific book in horticulture is called uh, Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard. I love the book. It has inspired me to do many various paintings and drawings, um, but I really love it because I've always felt that plants communicate and people would look at me like I'm crazy when I would say, of course, plants speak. Of course, plants talk. They just don't talk like we do. They communicate. And, you know, they would, if I would get the eye roll <laughs> and, and I would say, well, do you think that we're the only ones who communicate? I, I, I just could never understand that, you know, that humans could be that arrogant to think that nothing else on the planet communicates. Mm. How do they communicate? I guess there's many various org organisms and they'll communicate in different ways, but could you give maybe one or two examples? Sure. Uh, the, the more recent findings, uh, a friend of mine who has, um, who has been a, the longest running columnist, garden columnist in the United States, Jeff Lowenfeld, he wrote three books called uh, the trilogy, the trilogy uh, about mycorrhiza and bacteria and nutrients and how they actually cross the cell membranes in the root of the plant. The, the soil, as, as we think, uh, we've thought for a very long time that soil is not living. It's, you know, it's there just to supply nutrients, but it is just as dynamic and uh, a living organism like we are. And there are living organisms in the soil that actually help promote nutrient uptake, uh, whether the, like the, for example, rhizophagy um, actually goes into the cells of the plants and breaks it open so that they can take advantage of the nutrients and then they go back out into the soil and then they come back into the plant and that process goes back and forth. And it's the same with uh, mycorrhiza, which is a fun fungi. Um, when I was uh, teaching at the university, I had a student who discovered a new dyeing technique for uh, looking at um, endo uh, mycorrhiza or endo or and then there's also ecto, which is out, outside the, the uh, root. Endo is inside. And she was able to stain the roots and discover how many um, myco mycorrhiza were actually in the root of an oak tree, for example. And that was really fascinating to everybody, and not only to to the faculty, but also to the students. And uh, she later on became a doctor, um, and that 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 paper actually set her apart from everyone else entering university because she came up with this new technique of, of staining uh, the roots of a plant uh, in in at the university in undergraduate school. So wow. it's pretty fascinating. That's very impressive for undergraduates. Um, so are they using that the, the fungi or the fungi to communicate or are they communicating with the fungi? They actually do communicate and they will, what happens is, and 
in Suzanne Smart's book, she talks about how um, a birch tree can offer its water, if it has too much water, to the, to the spruce. Uh, and the huh. spruce can offer nutrients that the birch might not have to to the birch. So that interaction between root systems are happening through the mechanisms of bacteria and fungi and a rhizophagy. Uh. And uh, so when you separate a community, it's like separating, you know, how here in the United States, we've had this controversial thing um, with the Mexican border where the children were being separated from their parents. And it's the worst thing you could possibly do because there's a lack of communication. There's a lack of understanding. And it's that a spiral that happens to plants when you strip a field of everything and just put a, a plant in it and expect the plant to grow when there's nothing else around. I mean, we don't leave our babies on the roadside and expect them to grow by themselves and to get food by themselves. We just don't do that. And yet we expect plants to do it. And those fields that have other plants in it will actually help nurture uh, up the plant, the young plant that's growing. So when you're, the, there's also a method called Milwaukee, the Milwaukee method of growing uh, forests, for example, when you plant hundreds of trees and shrubs together uh, all around the same size in a plot, they will all grow in unison. And as they grow in unison, trying to compete for the food, they will keep growing and growing and growing and some will outcompete the others and eventually some will die but they will continue to compete for the resources and also share the resources that they're not using so that to me is really a way to communicate it's just like when somebody puts food on the table um and you you know they may not be there but they put the food on the table well guess what you know that they left you something to eat Mm -hmm. So have something to eat. Um, don't just leave it sit there. Utilize it. And maybe even ask somebody else to come in to utilize it too. It's that same kind of process. That's interesting. I mean, I've, I guess I've always thought about plants as just these things that grow and they don't, you know, I, I have my plants in little pots so they can't communicate with anything else. Um, so it's interesting to think that maybe I should plant them all in in a big pot so they can share and talk to each other. It's it's like having, um, it's like how they say with with pets, you know, you should always have two pets so they can, um, you know, talk to each other and be together all the time rather than having one lonely pet. So yeah, I think this, I think that today is going to change how I think about plants. Well, there's a, another woman in another book called Braiding Sweetgrass um, by Robin Kimmimer. And Robin Kimmimer is a native, um, uh, indigenous person here in the United States. And what I found in listening to her, because we had her talk at one of our conferences, and she said that the word kin, K-I-N, means a uh, relationship. So when we talk about plants, we can talk about them as kin to us mm. because we have a relationship with them. So they're not it's, they are kin. Mm -hmm. So you never want to treat them like 
they're non-living or they're nothing more than a castaway. Um, they're not. They're 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 providing things for us that make them kin to us. So that's another way to look at plants and how you know we may shift our paradigm and how we think about them and and how we value them or you know those people who don't value them you know the people who don't value them don't understand and usually when there's a lack of understanding there's a lack of abuse i mean there's a there's actually abuse that occurs when there's a lack of understanding does that make sense yes yeah yeah i mean I think we see that with, with unfortunately, a lot of things, you know, if, if you don't understand something, if you don't understand that, you know, um, plants are living things, if you don't understand that pets have, have um, I guess, a right to be treated well, if we don't understand that other people are people, then we tend to abuse them and neglect them. Yeah. And a good example, when you're talking about pets, um, you know, the idea of having a pet and someone saying, well, they don't have feelings. Of course they have feelings, but not like ours. They interact in a different way. And it's the same thing with plants, for example. They do have feelings because we've done very uh, numerous experiments at the university where students would have the plants listening to music. And uh, invariably, they would grow faster. They would respond better. The plants that were neglected and not talked to and shunned, they stayed short and didn't grow as well, as healthy. And mm. so those those kind of examples can be shown over and over and over again. Um, and, and so understanding that plants can communicate um, and whether we want to listen or not, that's another story. Mm. There's a, a thing here uh, that most recently that they discovered about plants and nighttime light, for example. Nighttime light is bad for humans, but it's also bad for plants and animals outside. Oh. Um, what, what they discovered is um, that plants actually stretch at nighttime. They stretch their cells and they're more elastic and more plastic. And they just, they can exercise themselves in the darkness. And as light starts to come on, they start to shrink back to their regular size or whatever size they were. Um, and and then they go back to their their photosynthesizing, et cetera. But during that time when they're not photosynthesizing, they're stretching. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'm going to have to, maybe I'll do my own little experiment with my plants. I'll get two plants and I'll put one outside where it can stretch and there's no light and I'll put one inside might be a bit of a heat difference. Maybe I'll do it in summer. <laughs> Whenever, yeah. Yeah, and then I'll see if one grows better than the other. They have the opportunity to stretch. It's just like us. If mm -hmm. we don't have a chance to stretch and, you know, move our muscles and, and our legs and who knew that plants stretched until they I started know. to do these, these, extra, these, these experiments. I know. That's so interesting. Um, we're going to move on to our next question so we get to know a little bit more about you. Um, do you listen to any podcasts? I do. The Hidden Brain. Mm -hmm. And um, the other one is, um, hold on, um, Planet Money and How I Built This. Mm -hmm. Those are 
those are ones that, oh gosh, I can listen to those all day. How did people, you know, struggle to get to where they are to be successful and building a business? And how does that happen? Uh, how many times you tried before you were successful? Um, and where did the money come from? Who funded it? That That's the other part. And of course, the hidden brain, all the the fascinating things that are going on in our brains that we have no idea are happening. That to me is incredible. Mm. Yes, I I listened to two of those three podcasts and I've heard a lot of great things about how I built this as well. So I think I should put it into my rotation. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, there's just so many podcasts out there. Um, there are. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, those, um, I mean, obviously uh, great picks because I like them. <laughs> so See, I'm sorry you. I didn't I didn't um, give you more that you didn't know about. <laughs> no, I like it when people suggest things that I listen to because number one, I'm, I'm, we're also suggesting for our listeners, um, yes. but also makes me feel good that I am listening to some, some interesting podcasts. Yes. Yes. And it, it is, tr- it is true. You know, the more that, um, the more that we listen to certain things that actually expand our minds, we can actually um, expand how we view the, the, the earth and the universe. Mm, yes. So many podcasts have taught me so many things that um, I apply directly into my life nowadays. I don't necessarily think I apply everything I learn because there's so many things, but I think it, it, it influences me in so many different ways. And I think, yeah, planet money and, and hidden brain are two that I, I really think about a lot. Yeah, that they're they're ones that I try not to miss when they're mm-hmm. on. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and do you have a role model? I can honestly say that I've had many role models uh, through my life. Um, I've had shaman role models. So I've had seven of those, and I've had um, really wonderful teachers. My my botany biology teacher in high school. She was a good role model. I still am in touch with her today. Um, and and surprisingly, um, she belongs to a garden club. So sometimes I speak with her, her garden club. But she was always really fascinating to me. Just the information that she would impart and the passion with with which she she imparted it made me want to learn more about science. I think that having those role models really early on is also really important because they really do help to shape your life. They do. They really do. And of course, I, I had good role models in my, my parents and, and family members who were very talented. And um, I know that I watched my mom a lot. She was a tailor and I learned how to sew from her and, and watched her do her artwork. And, you know, that, that to me was really, really um, an opportunity to learn. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, and have you completed any courses that have inspired you? Oh, this is a good one. I've taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of courses. Um, and I really value um, my Reiki classes. Um, I'm a Reiki master teacher. What and is Reiki? I, Sorry. Uh, Reiki, well, that's okay. Reiki is working with um, the unseen energy within the human and helping shift energy, um, help help the physical body as well as the 
the um, aura body to move if it's stuck. It's really, it's fascinating. And that was, not, you have to take like three, there was like three levels of Reiki. And uh, I, fe- I felt that that has changed my life. Um, when I was studying abroad in, in England, I met a friend who was studying there also. And before we left the university, he gave me three resumes, his mother's, his father's, and his, and all three of them were Reiki people. His mother was a Reiki master teacher, his father was a Reiki master, and he was a Reiki practitioner. And I came back and lo and behold, my friend had become a, uh, a, a Reiki practitioner. So I said to her, where do I go? And that's how it started. So I do that. And then I also felt really important, the, the important thing about meditation, going to meditation classes and learning from my different shamans. They, they've, they taught a lot about meditation and rebirthing and, and then, um, mindfulness. And I have a, a really wonderful, uh, gentleman who teaches our mindfulness classes on Saturdays. And he's, he's studied with a lot of people around the world. And just the fact that he can get us to remain silent in our minds is, is really important for, and also gratitude. Mm. Wow, you certainly have done a lot of courses and you're very, uh, very knowledgeable in so many different areas. Uh, I I think it's important when you're teaching that you need to be able to bring different topics in for students to latch on to. So if it might not be the plant, it might be it might be something else about the plant. It could be a medicinal about the plant. It could be um, an insect that has a relationship with that plant, or it could be that plant as a wholesome um, edible that will provide a, a nutrient that maybe somebody might have a deficiency in. Yeah, thank you. Um, so how do you define household management? Household management. Oh, this was a big thing in our life. <laughs> My mother was a home economist. Oh, wow. And, and, and she was uh, very well trained. Um, and so we learned, you know, how to do wh- what, when, and, you know, how to time uh, your meal so that it all came together at the same time and that you put on the table at the same time, um, how to prepare things and clean up as you go so that you don't have mounds of messes everywhere or to um, to create outdoor spaces that are just as important as inside spaces. Uh, welcome yourself to your front door with beautiful plants because who else deserves it more than you after coming home after a long day? Or entering your back door that may be where your car is parked and there is a beautiful planter or garden that smells good as you walk into the house in the evening. Those kind of things are part of the home as as far as economics goes. Um, and from a from a monetary standpoint, what do you place value on within the house? Do you just get by, even if you can afford more than just getting by? Or do you do you provide things that are um, the best that you could possibly provide 
and that there's a long-term benefit for everyone in the family. Um, that was one of the things my father used to say is cheap is expensive. Mm -hmm. So if you can afford the best thing that you could possibly buy, then it's going to last long and it's not, you're not going to have to keep buying it. So our tools were bought that way. Our home appliances were bought that way so that they're not keeping, they're not constantly going out the door and being thrown into a dump somewhere or can it be fixed? And if it could be fixed, um, the type of vehicles we drove, my father made cars. So we had to have a good car, a good dependable car and one that was not um, as polluting. Even back in the 60s, I mean, even back in the 70s, we were looking at that and we talked about that in our household. It was something that we all talked about because my grandparents came from Europe. They were, they, they only put out a tiny little bushel of, a little bushel of trash at the end of the weekend. It was usually cinders from their fireplace. Wow. That was it. I can't imagine doing that. I think that, you know, my partner and I are taking rubbish down constantly. Um, and I try to reduce it, um, but I don't know how to, you know, I think it's it's difficult in in, in today's society yeah. and just our lifestyles. Well, and I also think, you know, we have the compost pile and the, um, or the worms in the kitchen or the uh, small little composter that makes compost in 24 hours. Those can be utilized very well in a house and not um, make as much a waste as, as you would typically have. Um, those things are things I think about all the time. You know, we were talking about the glass bottle the other day and how uh, how I would I used to go to um, different places to watch how they would clean out their bottles and reuse them and re you know fill them up with milk, for example, or the Pepsi company or the Coke company. We could go and see those go on a tour and see how they clean the bottles and then refill them. And to me, huh. that was the most fascinating thing because it was important that that wooden crate at the end of at the end of the day was filled with the leftover bottles that were used. And then the 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 company that had this soda would come back and pick them up and take them back to the company. And once they unloaded the truck at the end of the day, it was filled back up with the glass bottles that were empty. It, I, it just I, made it just made sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean. Um, I did, I mean, I didn't realize number one, that I, I knew that milk bottles used to be collected and reused. I didn't realize the same was, they, they did the same for soft drinks. Um, that's so interesting, but, um, I mean, I've, I've done other podcasts talking about, um, what is it? Uh, life cycle, um, thinking, uh, where, you know, the producers are also responsible for the waste. And I think that this whole, the whole glass bottle thing is, we used to do it. Um, why don't we still do it? Why don't we still collect the glass bottles and reuse them rather than having all this plastic? It's, it's so much easier. Well, probably not easier, but uh, easier than fixing the problem. Yeah. And I think you're right about that. And I, you know, the glass bottles just, because the soda bottles you used to actually get money for. So kids would, kids would, that's where they would get their allowance money. They would go and pick up bottles on the street and they would take them back to their local store and they would get a, sometimes sometimes a nickel, sometimes a dime, sometimes two pennies. But all that added up in the end of the, at, at the end of the week when you were scavenging for them. And it, most of the time, 
if somebody left a bottle behind, it was because they couldn't carry it. Otherwise, people would take their bottles home with them so they could get the money for it. Yeah. But this is how children would make extra money for their family or for themselves. So we're going to move on to what our topic is today, and it is related to what we've just been talking about. But I do like to sort of set out some definitions first so we know what we're talking about. So what is sustainable gardening? Well, sustainable and regenerative gardening is um, a way, in other words, when we are constantly controlling things out in nature, we make work for ourselves. We don't allow the landscape to do the work and the heavy lifting. We actually make, we make our work harder (laughs) because of how we manage so um, I'll give an example. Um, when I was studying in England, uh, horticulture, I noticed that we had to do a, a landscape management plan for how to manage um, one of the estates. And it was not to mow everything, but just to mow along the edge, just to mow along the edge so that the edge was tidy. And it didn't rub up against your legs when you were walking along a sidewalk, for example, or a street. The rest of the area was left unmowed so that the plants could grow, absorb the moisture, uh, keep areas cooler because they're taller and they're shade. And then sometimes they would mow a pathway through that uh, grassy area or meadow or whatever you want to call it. And you could walk through it to get someplace else. So a trail was cut through it so that it might be a shortcut someplace. But the whole field didn't have to be cut. If it was a playing field for soccer, for football, uh, for Europeans and in Australia, um, you would intentionally set the parameters for that field. And that field would be maintained so that anybody who wants to play on it can play on it. That's Mm. different than mowing everything and and expecting to constantly keep everything trimmed down because somebody might be afraid that there might be an animal in that tall grass or there might be an insect that's in there. Um, We've gotten so, um, we micromanage everything. And these ways to unmicromanage actually help the planet and help regeneration. Uh, For example, allowing the seed heads on plants to disperse. If it's a good seed, obviously. If it's it's if it's an invasive seed, you want to always control it. But if it's a if it's a good local native plant, why why don't you just let the seed disperse itself? That's what it does best. And let it regenerate. We've sometimes have mowed these places so much that there's a lack of seed in these areas because we have mowed them so much and the plants can't regenerate. So we have to come in and help. We have to assist mm. like a midwife. It, 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 that to me does not make sense. Mm. I, I know that um, in Australia, you know, we've got particular companies that they grow turf so that people can have instant lawn and then 
my dad has spent so much time, you know, getting our lawn to look just right. You know, he, um, in the spring, he'll kill all the weeds that have popped up in the grass and then he'll have to sow all the lawn seeds so it grows. And then he's got to mow it, you know, every other week so it doesn't get too long. And so I think what you're saying here is that because Australia isn't really supposed to have lawns like this, uh, it's something that we have to basically import um, because, you know, we're a really hot, dry place um, and the lawns don't grow there naturally. Um, so that's why we have to do so much work. And so if we were to plant something that was more suitable for our area, a very sandy, hot, dry place, we probably wouldn't have to do so much upkeep. Well, and that's, that's the secret. The idea of working with the locals, if you will, you know, um, and I'll use an example of people. When you go to a when you go to vacation somewhere, you always ask the locals, you know, what where should we go, mm -hmm. or what should we see. And it's the same thing with plants. You know, you look to see what grows the best in that area and what's local, what's native to that area, and that's what you should be concentrating on planting, mm -hmm. and planting it in a way. You can plant it into a garden with a beautiful garden design and and feel really good about it. And you could have a small area where you have turf, which takes up a lot less water, but you have the other plants around it doing the tough work. They're doing the heavy lifting. And a lot of plants, especially in dry areas, they have very deep roots. And those roots are so deep that they can actually pull that water to the surface for themselves and for their colleagues in case they don't have as long a root, right? So this is, this is how you can create an environment that is less demanding from us and more demanding on the environment mm -hmm. by allowing the native plants to do their thing within the context of of the location that they're in. So if we were to start the process of trying to design or to create a regener regenerative garden, where would you start? You know, say I've got, I've got a piece of lawn in front of my house. Where do I start? Well, what I do is I think of the home, the doorway as the portal. And think of it as a portal. Just think if your portal's not interesting looking, who wants to come into your portal? Mm -hmm. Like, I want to be greeted by maybe a few in it, if you're in a dry location, maybe some protea or um, something that would, you know, really provide interest and also provide insects and birds that might come to come to the plant that I can actually see up close as I'm coming through this portal, if you will. Around the door is where I'd like to start. And you could start simply by having either containers that are that are more related to dry plant material, or you can plant directly in the ground close to the door so that you don't have to water those containers. So that would be an area where I would start. I always like to start where you're going to be greeted and then work my way around. And then two areas that 
need less and you you go less to, you put less work into. But we somehow feel like we have to do all this work for every place in on the property, even though we don't frequent it very much. So that's that's what we should be thinking, you know, close up, more intense as we go further away, less intense, more wild. Um, maybe the mowing practices change as you get further away. Uh, and, and then um, even vegetable gardening, if you want to have a vegetable garden, pick a, pick a place that you're going to be going to regularly and you're there all the time so that you don't have to go out of your way for it. Um, that is ideal because you'll remember to do any weeding it if it needs to be done or any tying up of plants if it needs to be done. Uh, but the idea of having things close to the house so that you don't have to go as far makes a lot of sense. And then as you get further away from the doors and the entryways, those areas, you can maybe make a little area, maybe underneath a grove of trees as a little sitting area, but the pathway to it is what you maintain and not everything else. Okay. I like that. I like this idea of, you know, concentrating, I think, even just on the entrance at, at first, because as someone who is not into gardening, as someone who doesn't have much experience gardening, I think it can be very uh, overwhelming to think about tackling the whole garden. And so saying, just start with the front door, because I'm going to walk past that every single day. And I'm going to see if the plants need watering, if they need something done to them, I'm not having to survey and spend a lot of time checking everything to make sure it's okay. So yeah, that's great. Um, but regenerative gardening isn't just about the design of the garden. What are some other practices that you know we need to know about? So what, when we talk about the design, the design could be to actually help the plant to regenerate. Uh, so we would leave we would leave a little bit more open space so that that plant can creep along and have more space to to um, root itself. For example, if something was creeping along the ground and it does really well, perhaps it'll help in storm water management if you have a really heavy storm. Uh, I know here we've had a lot of rains in really wet areas. Plant plants that love it wet, they like wet feet. You, you don't want to put a plant that's going to die because it can't handle the water around its its roots. Um, so those are the kind of things I think about. Um, and then from a design perspective, or, or from other than a design, well, everything is really designed when you think about it. Um, less design, less, um, less intense design, moving away from the house and start to think about what the plants do look at the plants and go to a botanic garden. That's why botanic gardens are so important. And go to a botanic garden and see how they're growing that plant and see what it does. Even in the tropical houses here in the North, we have uh, in Northern um, the US, we have botanical gardens that show how these plants can be grouped together or they've been in that house for a very long time. And it's, you know, it's a really big plant and it some of the plants kind of get it a little bit aggressive. So you start to, you know, cut them back. So you start to watch how things operate and you read up on this uh, information too. Um, as a 
as a, an Australian and you look around your landscape, you can see plants that animals go to. Uh, they want to be near. They want to take protection under. Those are the kind of things that you might want to consider for your garden because you want to bring in maybe maybe nature closer to your home or maybe further away from the home. Maybe that's on the border of your home. So that you kind of get the idea that, okay, the animals are welcome, but they're, we really don't want them right at the front door. We really don't want people getting, you know, a little frightened. Put that plant further away and we could still enjoy it someplace on the property. I, I do remember that reminds me of um, when I was a child, we had a, I think it was just a tree in a pot next to the door. Um, and a couple of times there was a snake in the pot because it just, I, I don't know, maybe it was warm in there. And so we had to be quite careful because walking past it, if you disturbed it, you know, it could, it could get scared and bite us. Um, so maybe not planting the snake friendly um, plants right. near the house. Right, exactly. And that, that would be that um, really warm, hot location where the snake's gonna sun himself. It might be something that's shady something cooling what we enjoy rather than the snake enjoys mm. so you know we can think of it that way and and it really makes a huge difference when we're we're talking about planting and and designing uh you know you we have non-native plants here in the u.s and in fact we have uh, botanic gardens that are starting to bring south african plants up and some of them can handle the cold winter surprisingly well and others, no, we just use them as annuals. But the idea of understanding what they do in the landscape allows us to have a little bit more latitude of who we're going to bring in, who we're not going to bring in, um, who might work well with our native plants and who might not. So those are the kind of things we want to think about, too, mm -hmm. from a regenerative standpoint, because we don't want things to regenerate that are pushing out our own native plants. We, mm. we want to make sure that they're not too aggressive. We want things that play nice together. Just, you know, how it is, you know, even with humans, play nice together. <laughs> Would you say that we should avoid planting any sort of, I guess, non-native plants in our gardens? Well, again, it depends on its aggressive nature. And I have plenty of non-native plants in my garden. And I love them dearly. Um, for example, hydrangea paniculata, which is a, which is the panicle hydrangea, has really big heads of flowers on it, and I love it in my back garden. I have a small back garden; it's a ter terrace and patio area, it's crammed crammed with plants. And that when that blooms, I can not only smell the fragrance. Because I love it, I can smell it comes through the you know the these screen doors when they're open, the sliding doors when they're open. I can smell that fragrance, but I can also go out there and watch all the myriad of pollinators that are there, just going crazy like gangbusters pollinating it. That to me is so exciting, and you know some people would find that's really dull, but to me, it's exciting because I like to do photography. So there's my there's my subject matter right there waiting for me in the back garden. Ah, oh, so easy too. Yeah, very easy. Okay, so... To... <laughs> Sorry? 
Uh, I just was going to say, I don't have to do much work about that because they, they come rather than me having to go chase them. <laughs> I mean, uh, bring the, bring, bring your subject matter to you. Why, why travel for it? Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's so great to hear that we can, you know, implement some, um, non-native plants into the landscape or into our gardens. Um, so long as, you know, they're not, I guess, you know, taking over and being a bit too aggressive with, you know, the native plants or I guess being invasive and spreading too far. Because as, as you said that, you know, we, we like certain things and, you know, um, I guess we're going to enjoy it more if we have the plants that we really enjoy, so long as they're not doing any damage anywhere else. I, and I think in a good example of that is most of our food products here in North America are non-native. Mm. They are non-native and yet we have them and we, we, we applaud them and we encourage to plant them. And I, I think of the one thing that we could not grow um, 40 years ago here was a fig tree. Uh, unless it was wrapped up in the wintertime and it looked like a mummy. And you think, what the heck is that on the person's front lawn? Are they trying to do sculpture or what is that? Because we get so cold that they would wrap it up in, in, in like towels and sheets and towels and sheets and like layers and layers and layers. Now it's hardy here because of the temperature and the, the um, microclimates have, have increased dramatically. We've, we've gone like two whole growing zones. And so we can grow figs here. Figs are not native to this area, but guess what? If you have a space for a fig tree and they start coming in, in this at this time of the year, and we're, we're talking August, we're in August um, 18th, the figs will start coming in. Everybody's talking about the figs in their garden and what they're going to make with their figs. And, you know, they're going to take them to the, to the um, shelter for people who have never had figs before. I mean, all of this goes on. And that to me is a type of regeneration because we're not only feeding ourselves or feeding somebody else and then we'll come back next year okay so yeah regeneration isn't just native plants that's so no. cool no, um not just native plants yeah you also mentioned climate change and how that's changing the environment so that's a big problem that you know we can't tackle on our own but can we use regenerative gardening to tackle it a little bit or yeah. Can we use regenerative gardening to help us and also help our planet? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, and it's all about the, the one person doing one thing or two things or three things that actually change the paradigm. And example, less mowing, allow the, allow the natural plants to come up. I was thinking of dandelions, non-native, Cow's milk is much richer with dandelions. Um, the leaves are edible for humans, but you can also make wine and from from the flowers. Um, and again, you can have those on on your lawn, and they could have some things that are taller along with it. Most definitely have have a a a, a lawn that looks or and a landscape that looks. Um, native with non-natives in it from that type of regeneration. Mm -hmm. And so how, how does having dandelions in the garden, how does that improve, um, you know, what, what benefits does that have other than looking nice? Well, there is something that's really fascinating about a dandelion. 
it has a very long root system. Mm -hmm. And the long root systems have the capacity to pull up water from down below that may not be available. It might be really, really dry. And those dandelion roots are pulling up that moisture to bring up to the surface and other plants can benefit from it. So it may not just be um, non, it's a non-native, but it's bringing up something that in, that might not be able to be brought up otherwise, especially okay. in a lawn, for example. Okay, so it's it's a non-native, but it is actually, I guess, helping the native plants yeah. to thrive because it's bringing in that water. Yeah, it is bringing in, it's also making a, a hole, that, that root that it goes, that root goes down and penetrates the ground it's opening up the soil and and providing other other seeds to to grow nearby. Oh. Um, yeah, I was thinking about I was thinking about a client that I have in California, and they have very dry location there. They're in Los Angeles, and uh, in talking with them, they had a problem because somebody had put cloth landscape fabric on everything in the garden. I mean, it's like just the worst thing that's possible could be done. And to prevent weeds from coming up, which is crazy. But anyway, their tree started to die back because the water system, it was on a sprinkler and it was drowning the roots. Uh. So I said to them, this is what you need to do. So I told them, you know, you have to take the fabric off, drill down into the soil, get a pool soil out, get, get a soil test done. And then there's this thing called bumper crop, which is, it has mycorrhiza in it. And I said, spread it underneath the whole entire tree and it, you know a good two inches and that and fill in the holes there too that you just pulled soil from and then i want you to plant clover on this spot underneath your avocado tree and plant clover because your soil test says that you have low nitrogen mm -hmm. and clover provides uh, the bacteria on the root systems create these nitrogen nodules so that nitrogen nitrogen's available in the soil. Mm -hmm. So they did all that. And about a year later, they sent me a picture and said, take a look at our tree. We cannot believe it. It is just growing like crazy. The clover is as happy as can be. We don't have to do any weeding underneath it because the clover is is has formed one big mat of flowers and foliage. And the tree is as happy as a clam. Amazing. And it was blooming, getting new foliage, flowering, you know, can't get better than that. You So you're providing, you're providing a system uh, that plants not isolated by itself and de not depending on humans to constantly intervene. It, it's almost, um, it's almost egotistical to be that way, to, to have everything expect humans to intervene um, from a, from a nature perspective. Mm. But in that case, you know, it seems like you did have to do some testing to figure out what the tree, what was wrong with the tree. I mean, I guess the, the water part was possibly self-evident, you know, by how much water there was, but the nitrogen maybe not so evident. So would you say that, you know, your average gardener is, is going to have trouble to figure out these things or they need to find professional help for these things? I, I think, and I'm not sure in Australia whether you do, you have, we have land grant universities here that provide the service of um, 
accepting a soil test, but there's also companies that do it too, where you, where you can take your soil test and it just says, you know, you look up and you say, how do I do a soil test? And you look that up online and it'll tell you exactly how to do a soil test. And then you collect the soil, dry it out, put it in a bag and you send it off to whoever's going to be doing the testing. And then that comes back with a beautiful sheet of all the information that you need for your property. Because a lot of times when we move into a home or a property that we have no, no knowledge of previously, like what was there. If I know that it was a cow farm, there was cows in the pasture, I'll know that it has high nitrogen. That's one thing. But if I'm moving onto a property that I have no clue as to what's there, the soil test is going to help me to determine what, what is needed or maybe not needed at all. So really easy. Okay. Easy and then piece. I guess, and I guess yeah. after that, then you can, you know, say you can Google my soil is low in nitrogen. What do I do? And then it'll come up with um, clover. You can say holistic approaches without fertilizer and then clover would be one. And there's lots of different types of clover you can use, but I, I gave them the small flowered form, which looks nice. It's white and it, and it has a really pretty green background. But you can get red clover too, which gets much taller underneath a tree. Um, I didn't think that would be as appropriate as the low-growing one. So, yeah. So you can. There's lots of there's lots of information, especially now with with the web. We can Google almost anything and find information. But what I would recommend, if you're looking for information, always go to either a known source. For example, a university site, um, a research facility some place that you know has credibility. If you go to some other place, you might not be getting what you need mm -hmm. when it comes I'm guessing, to plant. I'm guessing it's also going to be a little bit like place specific. Like you probably want to, I'm in Australia, go to an Australian university rather than a US university. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here um, we have our land grant here in Pennsylvania, Penn State does soil testing. Um, we also have it in Massachusetts and California. All these different places have it. And because we have the U.S. soil, I'm just going to make sure that I get this right. The, there's, a, there's a website where you can go to where it shows all the soils in the United States. Ah, and you can see what kind of soils are everywhere. Oh, that's clay in that area, or it's sandy in this area, or it's, it's a mix of um, clay and sand in this area. So it'll actually tell you the type of rock, the type of bedrock, if it's um, more um, acidic versus calicidic. You get all that. And I'm sure that um, Australia has something like that. Um, and if you if you don't mind, do you mind sending us the link for the website um, later on and we'll put it in the show notes? Sure. I'll make a note of that. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it's really, it's fun. It's mm. really fun because I've taken a lot of soil and geology classes and I thought, oh my, this is really wonderful. And just, and to also study rock too. And in Australia, you have some amazing rock formations. Amazing yes, rock do. formations. I don't know yeah. much about them, to be honest. Some very old, some of the oldest rock formations are found in Australia from what I understand. Mm. So yeah, really. Yeah. I'll have to see if we've got something similar in Australia and um, I'll learn a whole bunch about our ground. Yes. Um, and you also mentioned uh, like holistic 
uh, what was it, holistic fertilizers or what is that? Um, so when you talk about, um, you know, there's before, I would say after World War II, when fertilizers started to come in strong because they didn't know what to do with all the extra nitrogen from the military, um, that's when we started to fertilize. It was, it was a way to get rid of something, but then they wound up creating a whole industry of making something. Mm -hmm. So um, you can utilize things in a more holistic way by looking at what plants provide what. So some plants that are in the legume family, which is the bean, has the nodules for the um, for the nitrogen. And it's a bacteria, they found out, is a bacteria that's connected to the root system that actually helps to make that nodule form. So knowing that there's a whole range of plants that produce nitrogen, that in itself is like gold because we don't have to apply chemical fertilizers. We can actually use grass clippings, for example. Grass clippings, um, you can use, uh, again, the, the clover idea or beans, how they rotate crops and fields. They'll put beans in, then they'll put corn, and then they'll put uh, something else, and then come back to the beans again because they're providing nitrogen. But you'll note that you can find the information out. What does this plant use a lot of? Are you going to use, maybe you need some potassium or phosphorus and chicken manure, or are you going to you need more nitrogen? Okay, cow manure. You can use cow manure in, in place of that that nitrogen in the, in the bean um, because it's going to allow it to get into the soil faster, for example. Um, but there's lots of different things out there that we don't have to go to fertilizers for. I'm not, I'm not saying all fertilizers are bad, but I'm just saying that you can find regenerative forms. Like, for example, fish, ground up fish heads used in, in your garden. Of course, it may smell, but it's providing a nutrient. They actually mix that into some of the fertilizers or what we classify as the soils, actually the soils that they make uh, or blend with compost and um, core, which is the coconut core uh, that comes from that product. Uh, all of that get, can get mixed into making a soil that has all these nutrients in it without having to add uh, fertilizers. Interesting. Uh, they're, yeah, fascinating. So I don't know anything about gardening. And particularly regenerative gardening seems quite out of my reach, you know, you've given some quite easy ways to start, but I'm still a bit scared. You know, do you think that I, a beginner or anyone else could, um, you know, start regenerative, regenerative gardening? Absolutely. And if you can crack an egg and take that egg shell mm -hmm. and take a trowel and put it into the ground, you start regeneration. You not, you've taken that calcium covering and put it into an area that may need calcium in the soil. So you could put your eggshells in there or put it into a 
a potted plant that needs a higher pH, for example, or putting that eggshell into a compost and letting it break down so that it kind of works its way through that that soil mix. Doesn't have to be a lot. You don't have to be you don't have to be rich. You don't have to, you don't have to overthink it. You just need to have the will to do it. Mm-hmm. And the idea of doing it and it could be something that you time during the day if you're talking about home economics. It might be every time you have at the end of the day you take that little pail that's in your kitchen that you have collected all your trimmings from your vegetables, no meats, no cheeses, and take that and put that out into a little pile uh, in the back garden, in the back garden, and turn it around, maybe put some dry leaves into it, and let it sit there and see what happens. And then after a little while, turn it again a couple of times, and then come back to it and keep adding to it and turning it. And eventually you're going to have a really nice compost that could be utilized on your plants and in your flower beds. Simple, easy, peasy, and no expense to you because you've already spent it on your vegetables Mm -hmm. to eat, right? Yep. I was already going to buy it and throw it out anyway. So it's just added value. That's exactly right. So it's it's about reutilizing everything that we use. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, if I if I decide I'm not going to, um, if I have a lot of weeds in my garden, I'm going to use the cardboard that I just got something in from my shipper, and I'm going to pull that cardboard apart. I'm going to lay that cardboard on top of my uh, weedy area, and I'm going to put compost or mulch on top of it, and it's going to smother those weeds it's going to, those weeds are going to provide nitrogen to my soil because they were green. And now I'm going to just let that soil, that whole process sit there for a little while. And then, especially if it's the fall, it's great to do that in the fall going into the winter, because then over the winter, that, that whole process has a better chance of uh, breaking down. And then in come spring, that cardboard's already falling apart and you just make a hole, poke your put your plan in, done. And the cardboard uh, or newspaper leaves a layer in between the soil below and the mulch and whatever else you have on the top. And it keeps the moisture of the soil consistent, keeps the temperature consistent. And that way you don't have these huge swings in temperatures in the soil for your plant root system. Okay, so yeah, anyone can start, even if it's just a little bit of composting and putting an eggshell in a in a pot. Um, I'm going to be trying that because I've got a lot of little pot plants that are honestly um, not looking so good, and I think it might be they need a little bit extra oomph from eggshell, maybe some coffee. I don't know. Well, coffee. I was just going to say coffee grounds or leftover coffee in the coffee pot. Don't spill it down the drain. Uh, use it, put it onto your compost. You could put it onto your compost pile or tea or tea bags, that kind of thing. They'll break down and you'll have all that wonderful additional material for your compost. Great. Thank you. I'll be trying that. But I'd like to know as well, what is something that you do in your own garden that to manage your garden and that our listeners can try out? 
Well, the first thing I did when I moved into this particular house was I brought plants from my previous house. And I did exactly what I was just telling you about with the newspaper and the cardboard. I planted the plants in the ground. There, there was grass. So what I did was I turned over the ground and I pulled the grass out and turned that over and then put the plant in the hole and then put the newspaper and cardboard right up to the plant and then mulched that little mound and then continued on with all the other plants in the in the garden. And like within a couple hours, my garden was made. And it was actually, it took a day, but from start to finish. But I, I, and the, the, the area is a decent size and people were like shocked. They were like, what? I can't believe that that, there's a garden in the back here. There wasn't a garden here yesterday. Now there's a whole garden. Yeah. And I do have, I do have uh, flower pots. I've got a lot of plants that are in pots because I do trials for companies and I test them to see how the plants are functioning. Um, do they work well? Do they bloom well? Do they, can they take a little bit of uh, dry, dryness because I forgot to water? Um, so yeah, and that's, I, so I, I do, I do those practices. And the other thing that I do is occasionally I'll edge the edge of my bed so that where the lawn is, there's, there's a nice divide. And I also like to keep that. And sometimes I'll use pine cones and fill that that area with pine cones as a mulch. Or I'll put pine cones on the top of my containers as a mulch rather than as a regular mulch mulch that I would have to buy. I'll use pine cones because there's lots of layers in that pine cone and it'll keep the moisture into the gra- in the ground. So I'll, I'll do that to make it look interesting. Yeah. Do you... I mean, but pine cones, they have seeds in them, don't they? Yes, they do. Would you grow a pine tree by accident? I actually, all of a sudden, I see these little pine trees coming up and I'll, I'll transplant them and put them into another pot and then I'll give them away as gifts or so somebody else can plant a tree in their property. Okay. I don't so like, it's to not... let, I don't like to let that go to waste. I could just imagine like, you know, uh, what I would do is I'd probably, you know, take your advice, you know, use pine cones to mulch and then, you know, they'd grow a bit. I'd be like, oh no, I've got all these trees. I don't know what to do with them. And then I think I just have this little grove of pine trees. And you, you might have a little grove of pine trees, but you could always pass it on to somebody who needs them for their property. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll start a pine tree business. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> And so you said that um, so you said that you know you you trim the grass a bit and you put some mulch down. How often do you do this? I only do it once a year. Mm-hmm. I do it in the springtime. I'll I'll go out and weed. I'll go out and weed whenever I see weeds there. I don't make a big deal about it. I mean, it just I just weed when I see a weed. Rarely do I see a weed in my garden because everything's so close together. Everything kind of intermingles with one another. Um, Some people are afraid to have their plants touch. I think it's really important to realize that plants are made to grow together as a, Mm -hmm. like a, like a unit where they're coming together and meshing. Um, And the, and the stronger the mesh, the better it is because weeds won't get into your garden bed. They won't, um, they won't overtake anything in your garden. Um, So my whole garden's that way. 
it's it's very intricate. There's 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 pots in places that are bare, so I'll tuck that in. Um, I'll tuck in a, a plant um, if I see a, a little spot that something died. I'll put something else in so that there's never any um, soil showing mm-hmm. or mulch showing. Everything is covered. And I guess that's what it's like in nature. Um, you know, we don't have lovely little um, pots of or little um, rows of plants when you're in nature. They're all kind of, you know, meshed into each other and overlapping and growing out of each other. Yeah. And if you went into a woodland, uh, unless there was a clear path made, like by the deer in our area, we have deer that actually open up the little pathways. You can actually see where the deer go and you just follow those deer paths and that's how you get into the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we even, that's how even many of our roads were developed because we followed either the Indian trails or the deer paths. Mm, interesting. So we're going to move on to the open mic section next. So that's where you get a chance to talk about something that you're passionate about. And it doesn't have to be related to our topic today, but it can be related if you like. Did you have something in mind? Well, I I really wanted to talk about the climate crisis. And um, I I think I think we need to talk about it in in a way that everyone can understand it. It's not it's not a fake thing. It's it's happening and it's happening faster and faster. Our our whole earth is speeding up. And uh, as a former professor at a university teaching woody plants, and I still teach woody plants every year, I look at those plants and I say, are they responding this year the way they did last year and the year before and the year before that? And if the answer is no, why are they responding differently this year than they did last year? And are they fruiting at the same time that they did last year and the year before and the year before and the year before? And if they're not, why not? And I'll give you a really good example. I used to have a pawpaw tree in the back of my office. Now, pawpaw is the northern, um, it's the nor- northernmost tropical fruit. And it's related to, I think it's the mango. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a large fruit, about maybe about six inches. And it usually drops its fruit or did drop its fruit around the first week of September, first two weeks of September, maybe a little bit later, depending on how hot our summers were and how dry they were. But usually it was in September. And then over time, when I was at the university for 12, over 12 years, I noticed that the pawpaw was dropping earlier in August. Hmm. And it didn't drop all of its fruit like it normally did in two weeks. It held the one year it held it all the way into December. Now, why would the tree hold its fruit into December when it's clearly not normal to do that? The flags go up as a mm-hmm. faculty. I talk to the students about this. I say, what do you think's happening? What's this, what, we, what should we think here? Is it because we've had an unusual year? Has it been too warm, too cold? What, what's going on? 
are there is there different animal activity because they're usually associated and rely on animals to carry their seed in their guano so maybe maybe there's an animal shift okay this next year happens it happens again but doesn't doesn't it doesn't wait as long to drop it waits until november okay november it it's done dropping but there's still three whole months that it's dropping that's not normal mm -hmm. and you start to see these things blooming earlier or blooming later holding their fruit longer or dropping their fruit earlier these are signs that something is going on around us it's not political it's not anything like that it's observation and that starts to create a pattern. And there's a thing called phenology. Phenology charts are the listing of what, what's the plant doing when? And it's these phenology charts that are so valuable for us to look at and say, well, look, 10 years ago, this is when the plant was blooming. And now it's moved itself up three weeks. Okay? That's crazy. Something's mm. going on. It's getting warmer. It's getting, it's getting, it could be getting colder or it could be getting drier or it could be getting wetter. And these are the things we look at in science. What's, what's the phenology of the plant? And if the phenology changes dramatically, there's something wrong environmentally. And, and then we have to raise a flag. And woody plant teachers are one of the very first people on the front line to see this happening because we're out in the field all the time and we're looking at these plants and saying something's not right. That's where we can... So the climate crisis is real, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we can make changes in how we operate by what we do physically and um, mentally, to not only to ourselves, but to the Earth's surface, to our planet, our home. We can just make these few regenerative moves and it will shift the paradigm. That's where we need to go in order to create a better, more consistent um, phenology, if you will. For Because if our plants aren't blooming when we're hungry, or they're not fruity when we're hungry, what do we do? What if mm. the food isn't going to come in when we want it to come in? What do we do? We're reliant on food, and other animals are reliant on food. And if it doesn't come in in a consistent, reliable basis... We're in trouble. And that's another red flag. And mm. I think the third red flag is that we've been clear cutting so many trees in, in on the earth's surface that it's getting hotter because that is our, it, our way to temper the environment. And uh, being able to plant trees and have environments that we don't penetrate because we value them as cooling systems uh, we would be better off. And that's what we can do if we, 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 you know, we really put an effort into it. So I guess, yeah, taking that stand and, you know, um, talking to the government, making, um, telling, telling, making clear what we want by saying no clear cutting, climate change is real, 
by doing those things, we can, you know, at least try to affect and affect change so that we don't end up, you know, in a much worse climate crisis. That's exactly right. And that's what they're doing right now in Brazil now with a new president who's saying no more clear cutting, no more clear cutting. And we're going to be going in and planting. We're also seeing the use of the Milwaukee method of planting these dense, small little forests. And they're only the size of a tennis court. But in that if we can keep building those tiny little ones and we keep creating those little spaces, those are acting as little cooling agents for our planet. Mm. Okay. So, um, and I guess what we could do is we can plant our gardens full of um, lovely thick um, uh, plants and try and affect change there. We certainly can and in a diverse and a diverse planting too. Don't be afraid to to plant diversity because diversity will keep a more balanced environment with our insect population, our birds. It'll provide food for the birds and the insects. And that way um, we can all be happier. We can all live happier. And um, thank you for that. I do have a few recommendations for our listeners if you are interested in some more of these things. Um, I spoke to Liz Friesen about vermicomposting. So that's composting with worms, if you want to learn more about that. I also spoke to um, Julie Travellini, who talked about sustainable home landscaping. So getting a bit more into the nitty gritty and how to do these things. Uh, So thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, If people do want to find out more about you, um, where should they find you? Um, You can Google me at evamonheim.com. That's my website. Um, you can also find this Eva Monheim Instagram. I have all kinds of plant uh, videos on there where you can listen to them and you can learn about trees. Uh, and I'm also on, uh, let me see, um, I also have my uh, plant, the podcast, the podcast, the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, which is also another a good resource for you if you're interested in finding out how we're fighting the climate crisis uh, on the podcast. That's the Planet Trillion Trees podcast.com. And uh, we have connectors to that too through Facebook and Instagram and t- TikTok. Great. Thank you. Um, we'll make sure to put all of those links in our show notes so everyone can find them easily and they can find your podcast and um, give it a listen. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was great to have you. You've been listening to On The House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.